Okay, so before we start the episode properly, we're going to have to start with um, a quick trigger warning that today's episode is going to talk about residential schools, military experiences, PTSD, addiction, and homelessness. So take care if you can't listen to the episode. That's fine. But just a heads up, that's what we're going to be covering today. Yeah, I think from everything you've told me, this is going to be a bit of a rough one. I think so. Yeah. Welcome to One Great 150, our uh, Winnipeg history series covering 150 years-ish of Winnipeg history. Uh, I'm Sabrina. And I'm Alex. And we're joined by friend and producer Nick. 150. And uh, today's episode is about Tommy Prince. Yeah. Yeah. You know who he is. Nick, do you know? Yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah. That's one of the few names I've, I've recognized so Inter- far. I think hey. that, I, yeah, I feel like that might be kind of, well, not a first, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, we were doing some deep cuts. For a lot of the earlier ones. Yes. I've heard of Winnie the Pooh. Well, yeah. <laughs> I would re- I would certainly hope so. Uh, so thankfully, we have uh, Shauna Mulligan here to help tell the story. She is a doctorate student at the University of Manitoba who wrote a thesis on um, PTSD and Korean veterans. Oh, very, very cool. So we brought her on as a guest. So you hear throughout the episode. Uh, here is her little introduction. Hi. Okay. So, Bujuanin Tansei, Shauna Mulligan, Dishna Karshon, Mia... Um, and Machifnia. Um, so I always like to try and practice, of course, the language of my people. I am a Métis um, PhD student and instructor at the University of Manitoba. Um, so I just introduced myself. My name is Shauna Mulligan. Um, I'm a Métis, as I said, Métis PhD student at the U of M. I'm also an instructor at the University of Manitoba, um, teaching a lot of the uh, first year Indigenous studies courses. Um, I usually, um, I tend to take on like the larger super section classes. That's as strange as it sounds for, well, not a professor, but an instructor to say this. Um, Most instructors are like, I prefer the smaller classes. I'm like, no, give me the big classes, which sounds really weird to hear. Um, My master's thesis is titled War Stories, Voices of Indigenous Veterans After 1951 or After Korean Conflict. Um, And there was a couple of reasons as to why I chose that particular title for my master's thesis. Um, In a sort of uh, three minutes or less um, description of what my master's thesis is about, I was able to collect the narratives of um, veterans who had served in the Canadian Armed Forces after 1951. Um, just to see what their understanding and their impressions were like of being an Indigenous person in the military and how that has actually changed and shaped um, how they go through life now as veterans themselves and how they have been able to um, use a lot of the traditional teachings to help them deal with, um, you know, some of the lasting impacts of military service. Mm-hmm. So uh, Tommy Prince is a Indigenous veteran who is the most well-decorated Indigenous veteran in Canada. Mm-hmm. So we're going to start um, a little differently. We're going to jump into like 1955. Okay. We're going to go back. We're going to work our way through the wars and going into the 70s. We'll be touching on the 50s and the 60s again in the next couple of episodes. But yeah. there are very different 50s and 60s than what like Prince was experiencing. Oh, interesting. Yeah. There's a pretty good like divide there of experience. So mm-hmm. we're going to sort of... Shift focus a little bit. Sure. So it's the summer of 1955. It is June in what's now the Exchange District, back when it was still like an operating warehouse district. There are ships running up and down the river still because the Alexander Dock is still operational. Oh. When a 47-year-old man, Ernest Pollard, falls into the Red River. 
He is saved by a passerby who reaches out over the dock, grabs him, and pulls him up onto the shore with the help of a stranger. The passerby sends someone to call for the police and then leaves the scene. Hmm. There is actually a good chance we would just not know who this is, except one other person in the area recognized him and called the media. Oh, wow. Um, if you couldn't guess from the title of the episode, it's Tommy Prince. I, uh, well, I did figure yeah. that out, yes. <laughs> so it's newsworthy in 1955 because obviously he saved a guy from drowning and that's a big deal. But mm-hmm. he is an extremely well-decorated war hero and like, oh, the name is recognizable. I guess well-known enough that someone knew him by sight as well. Yeah. He had all, like, he was downtown a lot in the 50s, so, like, mm-hmm. it's possible just someone who knew him. Oh, sure. As, like, a regular old person. Yeah. Um, when he was interviewed by the Free Press, Prince says, I know how I'd have felt if I were in the water unable to swim and someone just stood looking at me not doing a thing. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of Prince's whole, like, deal as a person. Someone who's just, like, he's not good at standing around, generally, mm-hmm. and he's not good at not doing anything. So, he's mostly known for his time serving in uh, two wars, in World War Two and in the Korean conflict. And we're going to pick up kind of quickly where we left off with Penner last episode, because Winnipeg in the late 1930s is like ramping up to World War II. Yeah. Everyone knows the war is coming. And the World War World War II breaks out in 1939 after Germany invades Poland, and then there's another cascading series of treaties mm-hmm. and alliances. Britain joins the war on September 2nd, 1939, with an interesting change. The last war we talked about, um, Canada was part of the British Empire and didn't have any power over foreign policy. So when Britain goes to war, right. we go to war. Right. That changes in 1931. The statute of Westminster granted Canada autonomy over foreign policy. Okay, very exciting. So now, we don't have to join the war if we don't want to. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we're going to and we do. Right. <laughs> um, but it takes a couple of days. They like It seems like they wait a couple of days just to be like, we're this independent is our decision. now. Yeah. yeah, we've thought this through. So Canada joins World War II on September 9th, 1939. Um, there's not as much like fanfare as there was with the First World War. Mm-hmm. With World War One, there were parades on the streets and people singing like patriotic songs. There seems to be a lot less of that. The attitude's a lot grimmer. I well, I mean, you know, we it would like, have to be. We just did this, right? Yeah, and there's also like an instant fear about like enemy aliens. Because, like, you see Jacob Penner getting arrested. Um, Someone accuses random city surveyors of being spies. Hmm. So there's just, like, chaos in Winnipeg over this. Um, J.S. Woodsworth um, of the Canadian Commonwealth Federation and a strike leader is one of the only uh, people in Parliament to voice an anti-war stance. Oh, interesting. Which is pretty controversial. Oh, yeah. But regardless of, like, the lack of fanfare, there's still people rushing to enlist at bases across the city. Um, across the country, there's specifically thousands of First Nations, Métis, and Inuit people rushing to enlist as well, both men and women. The numbers are kind of difficult to track entirely, because mm-hmm. obviously Métis people would have to self-report, right. which they're probably not going to do in the 1930s and 40s. No. I feel like there are a lot of people who like are rediscovering that heritage now because exactly. their family has hidden it effectively for so long. Yeah, exactly. So there's somewhere around 3,000 Indigenous people, like status people enlisted mm-hmm. in World War II. But the figures seem to vary a lot. Like, I've seen, like, a pretty wide range of numbers. I think it's around 3,000. Okay. Uh, Your options as an Indigenous recruit are uh, limited. Uh, Entering the military didn't, like, eliminate racism completely, obviously. So the uh, Royal Canadian Air Force and the Royal Canadian Navy actually required um, volunteers to be of pure European descent and of the white race. Huh. And that lasted until 1942 and 1943, respectively. Wow. So when Tommy Prince enlists in June of 1940 for the Royal Canadian Engineers, he doesn't have as many options. Mm -hmm. Prince has had actually some military experience by this point, actually. Um, He was in the cadets while he was attending Elkhorn Residential School. 
So, well, Prince is not from Winnipeg, exactly. He was born um, to Elizabeth and Henry Prince in Petersfield, Manitoba in 1915. He is the great-great-grandson of Chief Peguis. Oh, yeah. Who we talked about earlier in the series. And I think Chief Peguis's son also came up, right? He, he was did. He negotiated in Treaty 1. That's right. Yeah. So, like, a pretty prestigious family. Yeah. Um, when Tommy is five, he's sent to Elkhorn Residential School. And... This is a pretty common occurrence, obviously, throughout most of the 1900s. Children mm-hmm. were picked up from their families and placed at residential schools across the province and across the country. They're run typically by, like, various churches. Yeah. Um, the thing is, I, I felt like I knew in, like, I knew objectively that the schools were far away from the families. Right. But then I looked up where Elkhorn is. Mm-hmm. It's near Brandon. And he was from, Brokenhead Broken like... First Nation. Okay. So that is, like, so... north of the city. Right. Between that's... us and Selkirk. Oh, that's, that, Yeah. That's like, it's a four hour drive today. And, you know, we talked a couple episodes ago about the speed of cars back then. And like the roads also getting yeah. to like a remote school. So Elkhorn's run by the Anglican church. Um, a lot of like Northern indigenous children attend it. So um, an in- a band from the Paw has a lot of very well-founded concerns about the school that ultimately lead to it being shut down in 1949. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, children are like routinely malnourished. Teachers get proper meals and kids get nothing. It's... I mean, it's the standard complaints you're going to hear about any residential school across yeah. the country, unfortunately. Um, but for Prince as a student, he does find one outlet, and it is the cadets. Okay. So residential schools, many of them would have had cadet programs, especially around the First World War. Some had started phasing them out uh, after that point. Elkhorn was an exception that actually kept going throughout both World War One, interwar, and into World War Two. It's basically military training for children. Okay, I was just going to ask. It's basically like mini-army yeah. for kids. Yeah, basically. So when I was talking to Shauna, she talked a little bit about um, the cadet programs and actually how they were used in World War II. One of the things we do talk about is the intersection, of course, of residential schools and the Canadian military, because I was able to um, uncover in my research that uh, during World War II, so right around the time that Tommy Prince um, was serving, um, there were members of the Department of National Defense that were sort of being... Um, we're being asked to come to certain specific residential schools to kind of cherry pick um, senior cadet corps students that uh, cadet corps programs that had been created for residential schools or within residential schools to help kind of streamline um, into military service. Okay, so there's this sort of intentional program, which is meant to be sort of a pipeline into the army. Yeah, or some like assimilation pipeline essentially that's Mm, kind of the like broader administrative argument it's like you're teaching these children to obey orders to be used to like being subordinate to someone right oh god that's so sinister (laughs) but um for the perspective of the children there are some kind of like interesting opportunities in the cadets like Mm -hmm. the chance to be outside okay because you get to go out and do like drills in the wilderness right like survival training you have to do shooting so you get to enter marksmanship challenges Mm -hmm. it also gets to take you into the city Okay, yeah. So you can go enter, like, cadet shooting contests. And it gives these kids a chance to basically show up white kids. Hmm. Because many of them grew up, they were raised hunting on their reserves to begin with. Right. So they've kind of been doing this since they were little, and now they're doing it at school, too. Right, so I guess this is an opportunity also for some kind of pride and dignity and... And fun, also, Yeah. Not like the cadets broadly are fun, a lot of it seems pretty, like dull for recreational activity for children but yeah the outings seemed like they might have been a good time okay um and for a lot of them too it was a chance to connect to kind of like this warrior culture past that many of them would have shared like Hmm. if you look at like tommy prince he comes from like this long lineage of like warrior chiefs like peglis right 
So this is kind of the, like, outlet to connect with that. Okay. In, like, a present-day context. But the sort of Canadian-European concept of war is really different than the concept of, like, a warrior culture for Indigenous people. Okay. Which I did actually talk to Shauna a bit about because I was curious about what yeah. the distinctions were. It's interesting. One of the things I do talk about with my students is is that very distinct difference between European methodologies for warfare and Indigenous methodologies for warfare. Um, a lot of Indigenous methodologies for warfare pre-contact, you know, would use the environment around them, um, you know, would have um, more like shorter skirmishes or battles, not to say that they couldn't have protracted or, or longer, um, longer wars and stuff like that, but the aim of those wars was not to actually, um, you know, like do, was not to kill people, basically. It was... Um, you know, getting as close to other warriors as they possibly could without actually taking any sort of physical injury or anything like that. Um, and the big thing, the biggest thing that often is not talked about is the fact that many of those warriors, they could leave at any point in time. Like, even if they had joined a war, war party, they could literally turn around and go home up to the moment leading towards the battle. And there was like, as I like to say, because I watch too much RuPaul's Drag Race, no tea, no shade, um, for them to be able to leave, right? It was it was literally, thank you very much for at least joining us this far and supporting us, right? And it wasn't just like, well, okay, all the men are going off to war, right? There was entire community involvement, entire community support. So it wasn't just one of those those things where men would just basically go off and pick a fight. It was, you know, well, if we're going to do that, we need to have, of course, enough food. We need to have ceremony before we go. We need to have, you know, the blessing, of course, or the knowledge, um, at the very least, from our, our war chief, person who's our designate for, you know, war and conflict. You know, families, at the very least, would make sure that other families of warriors were looked after, Right. And when I did a lot of that research, I found that it was like, wow, we really don't have, I think, now modernly the, the same level of support for our troops and for veterans that, you know, we had had traditionally within our within our communities. That's really interesting. So I guess like part of what I'm hearing there is that like being a warrior might be your role, but it's not it's not your occupation. Yeah, it's not your job, right? Yeah. It's a thing you it's a thing you do when the need is when the need is there. Yeah. We talked about a bit too with um Cuthbert Grant a little bit and like the idea that a war party could just like be disbanded when the war was done and like Yeah, I mean I guess, you know, we're not talking about like a standing army where you, you know Yeah, are yeah. sort of formally recruited and you sign papers and you not yeah. to say that there's nothing formal about this process, but yeah, it's certainly a... the context is different. It's a big distinction, but it's it's the only outlet these kids get anymore, and it's a sort of like colonial version right. of it. But it is still an outlet, and it's something that Prince like really takes to. He loves it. He described himself as a Tom Sawyer type and a real rascal. <laughs> so apparently, he was just like always desperate to try and be outside hunting mm -hmm. and fishing, and would any chance he got, he was trying to be outdoors. Right. Can't. And, I mean, I can't relate to that, but <laughs> I'm very happy for him <laughs> that he got outside. Um, but he also took a lot of pride in the uniform specifically. Mm -hmm. um, at one point, he says, as soon as I put on the uniform, I felt like a better man. I even tried to wear it to class. Oh, He wasn't allowed to, but he yeah. tried. <laughs> um, once he's a little older, his ambitions shift to becoming a lawyer focused on like indigenous rights. 
Oh, cool. But his family's financial situation means that it's not going to happen. They live in Broken Head First Nation. There's not, like, a lot of jobs. There's logging in the area, and he is one of, I believe, 11 children. Oh, wow. Okay. So he's got a big family. Um, So he drops out of school after eighth grade to go help support the family, and he just kind of bounces around working odd jobs after that point until about 1939. Mm -hmm. By 1939, though, it's him and his brother, Bill, who are kind of... Traveling around Manitoba looking for work. They get out to Brandon. They actually go back to Elkhorn to see if any of the teachers there know if there might be jobs in the area. Hmm. They don't. It's the Depression. But they at least give them food and send them on their way. Um, They find a job working for a rancher for a little bit. Um, And then the war breaks out. The thing with bouncing around like that is that um, for Prince and his brother to, like, leave the reserve, they would have had to get permission from the local Indian agent. Right. So, for those that don't know, uh, Indian agents are basically these Canadian government employees that are tasked with supervising reserves and the people within them. Mm-hmm. They're in charge of rationing food, medicine, sending children to school, um, holding rations rations hostage if children wouldn't go. Yeah. Um, restricting hunting rights, like enforcing rules that could kick people out. Mm-hmm. They're also in charge of what's called the PASS system. Right. Which is implemented after the Northwest Rebellion as a temporary measure that then doesn't end. Oh, okay. For many, many years. Yeah. So basically, if you wanted to leave the reserve to visit someone else, Mm -hmm. to go shopping, to get a job, you had to apply for a pass from the Indian agent to both leave the reserve and come back. And you might not give it. Right. I've seen a couple of examples of these. They have a couple, I think, in the Winnipeg Gallery at the Manitoba Museum. And I think one of them says, like, um, like berry picking or harvesting or something on it. So I guess you had to give, like, a a reason. Yeah, you had to say why you were going somewhere, essentially. But also, like, it doesn't seem like they were super fussy about, at least Prince's case, there's no, like, record of it. Mm. But also, he's going around looking for work. Yeah. And I don't think it's a secret. There weren't a lot of jobs at the time, especially on reserves. And they also weren't super hesitant about um, giving passes for people going to enlist in the military. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So when World War II breaks out, Prince goes to enlist without much of a hassle. Um, There's a lot of reasons for an Indigenous person to enlist in the military, um including that it's a job, when jobs are pretty scarce in Canada, especially in rural areas. It is employment. Um, Prince's motivations, which he talked about later in life, were partially economic, but it also brought him back to a thing that he loved doing when he was younger. Mm -hmm. It was still the cadets. He still got to put on that uniform, and it gave him a chance to prove himself to basically everyone. Okay. He would later say, "Um, all my life I'd wanted to do something to help my people recover their good name. I wanted to show they were as good as any white man. Wow. So Prince would, throughout his career, go on to um, insist that Indigenous people had, like, worth, had merit, and were worth taking as seriously as anyone else. Mm -hmm. But this was his intention going in. He didn't really get the chance to do that right away. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) He went in with really big ambitions. The issue is that um, World War II is a huge war, and there's lots of, like, moving parts. So there's people, like, on the home front manufacturing stuff. There's, like, that cordite plant in Transcona doing that. Um, We did a a bonus episode about that. We did. There's, like, administrative positions. There's, like, uh, logging camps for prisoners of war. There's nursing, weapons manufacturing, and then combat positions. Mm -hmm. What Prince wanted was a combat position. Um, Those existed within the engineers that he enlisted with. But um, he becomes a sapper, which does, like, organizing demolition of bridges and stuff like that. Um, so he trains as a sapper for six weeks and then he shipped out to England to find out that he is doing home guard duties and support work. 
okay. for the first, first core field company. Yeah. He hates it. I wonder if that, I, I feel like that must have happened to a lot of young men, don't you think? Who had like so much gusto to go like. Well, and the way they sold, you know, come join the army was right, not. Fight for your country, not like. Yeah. Do you want to dig some latrines for a little bit or like yeah my grandpa did like clerical work right. for his for his military service yeah do you think so. that's what he wanted when he enlisted um he didn't have a choice his was mandatory oh okay. so he he hated it yeah no matter what but yeah <laughs> i mean clerical work also sounds boring yeah <laughs> so for a time in england he keeps his ev- evenings busy just like going around and meeting people because he's just allowed to roam freely for the first time right So, um, for a lot of English people, Prince is a real curiosity. Okay. Because how many of them have seen an indigenous person before in their lives? That's, yeah, that's true. And I, I can tell you, I grew up with a lot of British, like, comic books. Right. Um, there are a lot of stereotypes. They're very fascinated. Yeah. So it winds up that Prince gets invited to a lot of teas and a lot of dinners out of it. Huh. I mean, that's nice. Yeah, but... Uh, he does get tired of being, like, a curiosity oh, yeah. after a That's certain fair. point. Because that would be tiring. And I'm sure everyone's coming into it with, like, the stereotypes they've seen in comic books. Yeah. And in movies. And no real idea of what anything's actually like. For sure. And, I mean, you know, everyone wants to be treated as an individual. And not just, like... A representative of some group or idea, yeah. right? So, uh, once Prince gets tired of that, he uh, turns to sports. Okay. Another uh, member of the engineer said Prince was running up to five miles a day. Oh my god. And was boxing regularly. Wow. So, like, he was just doing any sort of movement to keep himself busy. Yeah. Um, a little bit later, there's an opportunity to volunteer for the paratroops. And Prince tells a colleague, I joined the army to fight, not to sit around drinking tea. Mm-hmm. And immediately signs up. Okay. So, he... I feel like that is, like, um more impressive now that he's actually over there because i imagine he at this point has a better idea of what's actually happening than he would have had right yeah when he enlisted he's still in desperate to get out there yeah so training for the first game parachute group was actually pretty tough there's like a hundred people who volunteer prince is one of nine that get in oh wow so like training itself is grueling and they don't let right. a lot of people in it is a like highly skilled unit i mean this is what i've heard about military training in general is that the place where they want you to fail is in training right yeah because it would also be horrible to like do light training and everyone gets out there yeah (laughs) they're actually bad at it so shortly after prince uh, makes it in the paratrooper unit merges with an american unit to become the first special service forces Hmm. um it is this like highly skilled commando unit that specializes in like parachute attacks marine landings um mountain fighting and desert warfare and like some like surveillance stuff so the unit alongside prince trains in montana until they're sent to fight in the italian campaign in the fall of 1943 at this point, the uh, Allies had captured Sicily, which mm-hmm. is an island, and they're trying to, like, launch an attack on the mainland to try and get to Rome. Okay. Uh, there are large numbers of troops coming in, and the first special service forces was sent in to help with the effort. So what they're needed to do is go in and get past this thing called the Gustav Line, which is a Italian-German defense line that we're really struggling to get past. Mm-hmm. They have to get behind it, launch an attack behind enemy lines, and distract them enough that the main troops can get in. Okay. So they establish a a beachhead at Anzio in Italy in January of 1944. This is about an hour's drive from Rome, just to put into perspective where they are. Right, okay. Um, The higher-up goal here was just claim the beachhead, advance on the Alban Hills, be prepared to advance on Rome. Mm Mm-hmm. So they just have to claim the beach. And that itself, obviously, is tough. Sure. Um, A lot of men died claiming the beachhead in the days to come. Prince's job was to sneak towards the enemy lines, a loner with a patrol, and then basically eavesdrop. Oh, okay. On the Germans. Yeah. 
Um, before attacks, he'd also um, rely, he'd relay false information near the enemy lines. Oh. So if someone was eavesdropping on him, they would then report the wrong information. Right. Interesting. So it would also, like, redirect people. Mm-hmm. Um, Prince was really good at this. He very quickly earned a reputation as a very skilled soldier. Um, they quick, Like, him and the whole brigade gets this nickname, the Devil's Brigade. Okay. Wow. A diary of a dead German soldier mentions hearing black devils all around every time we come to the line. Oh. And it's it's the F, FSSF with right. Prince. Um, there's all these anecdotes, too, that Prince would sneak across enemy lines and go into the trenches hmm. and, like, into the bunkers and just, like, steal things. So he must have been very just, like, I don't know, what's a better word for sneaky? Because I feel like sneaky has bad connotations, <laughs> but, like... Stealthy. Stealthy, thank you. And... Some of these stories seem, like, maybe a little grander the more they're retold. Oh, sure. I guess. That happens but, with war stories, right? Right. But also, like, there's obviously some basis in truth in this that, like, he's probably at least done it a few times. Mm-hmm. And there is this sort of conception at the time that, like, what Prince was doing was a thing that indigenous soldiers were, like, innately good at. Ah, uh, okay. They were good at being scouts. They were good at sneaking. Yeah. But it was mostly in, like, one of those, like, it's because of their race things. Right. Which, when I talked to Shauna a bit about, she had kind of a different perspective on it. Mm-hmm. They have access to things like firearms in order to be able to um, pursue traditional hunting, right? To basically feed themselves and their families in absentia of being able to have any access to, you know, like grocery store foods, right? Or those that are wanting to continue on traditional pastimes without being basically caught by the Indian agent because unfortunately the Indian act at that point in time still had incredibly oppressive measures in it um, about, you know, traditional cultural practices and how Mm. they were effectively, they were illegal. Um, So it's weird, but I also do believe that military department of national defense propaganda also used that specifically as a way to shame non-Indigenous Canadians into military service. Mm -hmm. So like there was a, as a matter of fact, during the course of my thesis, I did, um, I did happen to find a poster in regards to um, the purchasing of victory bonds and war bonds. And literally it is this picture of this sort of traditionally not traditionally garbed, but certainly the the non-Indigenous perspective of what an Indigenous person is supposed to look like. Um, and the quote on it is something like, you know, oh, you know, oh, pale face, my, my, my white brother, um, uh, my heart, or, you know, my skin may be brown, but my heart still believes in donating to the victory bonds or purchasing victory bonds right like it was just like when I found it I was absolutely shocked Mm -hmm. Um, but then there was that moment where I'm like yeah you know I'm not actually that shocked about this yeah if that isn't ever the historian (laughs) universal experience of like oh this is shocking well is it is it it actually but yeah there's I think some like the way Prince has talked about at the time is tinged with a little bit of like that stereotypical expectation of like this is what an Indigenous person does. Sure. But also, like, for Prince, it is how he was raised. In the summers mm-hmm. when he wasn't at school, he was hunting with his father. He was learning to track. He basically grew up in the bush. Okay. And according to um, a reporter, Mackenzie Porter, who'd interviewed him, he had this, like, easy sense of what they were calling ground. 
Like, when he landed, he just kind of instinctively knew how to move on it. Oh. So, like, he would land, he would creep forward on his stomach with the speed and agility of a snake. And could, like, take advantage of small depressions in a field to, like, Mm -hmm. conceal himself from view. So, like, he just knew how to use the landscape to his advantage. That's super interesting. Yeah. It makes him an excellent scout. Yeah. And he was also apparently a crack shot. Hmm. So he's the kind of guy you want in your, like, special forces unit. Right. Um, When there was downtime, Prince spent a lot of it reminding people where he came from. So he would make this one regular joke whenever his dad would send him a letter. He would hold it up and announce, I've received a smoke signal from the chief. (laughs) Just in case anyone forgot. Yeah. And this seems to have been a little disconcerting to some of his colleagues, actually. Oh, really? So there's a... uh, I'll let Shauna explain it better because she has a better explanation for what's going on here than I do. The moment you put on the uniform, they'll say, you know, other members will say, oh, you know, I don't care if you're black, white, brown, red, yellow, etc. Once you put on the uniform, like that's, you're green now, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the unfortunate thing is that, you know, just because you put on the uniform doesn't mean that the racism and microaggressions go away. Um, and there has been a number, unfortunately, of um, reports that have come out um, suggesting, and as a matter of fact, news articles suggesting that um, there are still elements within the Canadian Armed Forces that unfortunately do have um, very racist overtones, mm-hmm. um, whether people realize it or not. Um, but in Tommy Prince's case, like a lot of the the family or the connections that he had made while he was in the military, um, they were like, yeah, we don't care, right? Like you are a member of the military and we are going to treat you like a member of the military. So it was probably the first time that Tommy felt like he belonged somewhere. Yeah. Right. Under the merit of his own work. Right. So it's, yeah, I can, I can imagine that that was a very powerful and affirming thing for him that's really interesting so he's like on the one hand you know he's been sort of accepted in this way that he wouldn't have been previously on the other he's refusing to sever his connections to his history right and i think like i could see how easy it would be to just like let your past kind of slip by to fit in yeah in a group like this but yeah he's very insistent the whole way through he apparently talks a lot about like growing up near or growing up in broken head and going to residential school and Hmm. like issues that like his people were facing yeah so we like never let it really be forgotten where he came from, but mm-hmm. then yeah, he does get to prove himself time and time and time again right. in this unit. He is um constantly doing these like risky maneuvers. Um people in his unit often talk about like, oh, there he goes trying to get like another medal. <laughs> Which to some extent may also be one of those like, look at this, like look at this like indigenous guy trying to prove himself. Right. So there might, it might be tinged with that, but it does seem like he was pulling a lot of stunts. Sure. Would be how I would describe it. I mean, how old is he at this point? Uh, early 20s. So, you know. <laughs> yeah, right? Um, so the story Prince is most known for, and probably his biggest war story, comes in the February comes in February of 1944. Um, the FSSF has been fighting for around 90 days near the front lines without any relief. Oh, boy. And Prince is on a volunteer assignment running telephone lines in the dark near an abandoned farmhouse. Okay, I think I know this story. Yeah, yeah that's a good um, one. I let Shauna tell it because she was so excited, and it's it's a good story. Yeah. Um, where basically um, he had landed in Italy, and they were, he was, like, literally right on the front, and he was stationed um, specifically in a, a farmer's house, right, an abandoned farmer's mm-hmm. house. Um, trying to provide communications, of course, to the regiment behind him. 
Um, and there was a break in the communication wire because at the time, um, a lot of the uh, communications equipment they used, I mean, there, yes, there were radios, but there are also line, like almost like telephone lines, right? Mm -hmm. So knowing that that was broken after um, a prolonged period of shelling, um, he was like, well, I know I'm going to have to go out there and fix it if I'm going to be able to report back troop movements. Um, but he also knew that it was like, if I go out there looking like this, I'm going to be shot. <laughs> so um, he literally was able to scrounge around this abandoned farm and he found basically some civilian clothing and dressed himself up basically like an Italian farmer and um, went out into the field where he knew the broken line was and was pantomiming shaking his fist at like you know the the dog fighting aerial <laughs> combat that was happening and you know oftentimes you know yelling you know obscenities at you know the the troops the enemy troops that were in front of him and making it look like he was picking up weeds and was just like this incredibly perturbed farmer um but the strange thing was, is it worked, right? He was actually <laughs> able to get to that broken piece of line and he was able to sort of stealthily, in D&D terminology, we call it a nat 20 on your stealth <laughs> roll or your sleight of hand roll. And he was able to fix the break in the line and make it back to the abandoned farmhouse where he was able to you know, report back troop movements and how many enemy troops there were and what their strength was, right? Like he was able to literally complete the mission. Um, but that story is just always so mind blowing to me. Like the fact that he took an incredible risk and it strangely paid yeah, off. Yeah, I mean, that story is like wild, yes, right? It's, right. You know the the risk that he was taking there that someone would see him and be like. Well, it seems like German troops did see him. Right, he like, just looked like a farmer. Yeah, and I mean, you know that like there was you know pretty good odds, I guess, that they could have thought you know well it's suspicious we're even gonna go like talk to this guy at least. Yeah, and, and then I think the moment you got close, mm -hmm. he would have not looked like an Italian farmer. Well, and anymore. when he doesn't speak Italian, that's gonna yeah, be a right. giveaway. <laughs> but uh, yeah, pretty amazing. So as a result of this, uh, his commanding officer, Lieutenant Colonel Gilday, recommends him for a military medal for exceptional bravery in the field. Very well deserved. Um, after this point, the beachhead's captured and they have to advance, um, advance on the Riviera, where Prince is going to earn another medal and actually miss out on another one. Um, okay. He, um, so <laughs> basically, they were going to have to like figure out exact enemy numbers. To try and launch any kind of attack. So Prince's job was to sneak around with one other, like, patrol. Mm -hmm. And just track who was where. Um, and they're doing this for all, and they start sneaking back when they see some French partisans fighting a German squad. And Prince and the private he's with decide to help out. They hide behind, like, some shrubbery and proceed to start firing on the Germans. Okay. Apparently they are so preoccupied by the French that they don't notice that, like, shots are coming from somewhere else. Huh. And they wind up just, like, leaving because their uh, casualty rate is, like, worryingly high. Right. So they flee, and then Prince and the private go up to introduce themselves, and the leader of the partisan says, like, where's the rest of the company? Oh. And Prince goes, well, it's me and him. Jeez. And then the captain goes, I thought there were at least 50 of you. Oh, no. Wow. <laughs> 
And apparently he writes a letter recommending uh, Prince for a war cross, but the courier is killed before the message could be delivered. Oh. Uh. So that's the only way yeah. that doesn't happen. But uh, Prince gets back to safety, only to find out that um, the Allies have breached the defenses and are launching an attack. Okay. So he goes out again. Wow. Oh <laughs> right my away. God. Uh, by the end of it, he traveled 70 kilometers on foot, fought two battles, and hadn't had food or slept really in 70, 72 hours. <laughs> Uh, this time he's awarded a silver star okay. from um, the American government for his role. After the battle is won and Rome is captured, Prince is actually summoned to Buckingham Palace by oh. uh, King George VI in February of 1945. His brother, uh, his brother Morris, who's also a private in the army, attends the ceremony. By this point, Prince is a sergeant. We have a picture of him with his brother. Oh, this is not with his brother, but there's one with his brother. This is a picture of Prince after getting his award. Oh, that's so nice. He looks so excited. Yeah, he does. See, there's an American also receiving some awards with them that day. But apparently it's, I mean, obviously it's a big event, so. I mean, it's hard to be honored in a bigger way, especially in, like, 1943, than by being invited to Buckingham Palace, right? So apparently, like, the guards brigade plays this big song. He walks up a ramp in the middle of the palace in full uniform. He snaps to attention and salutes King George, and then George pins a medal on his chest and actually stops to talk with him for Hmm. a little bit about, like, the reserve he grew up on and what his life was like. Oh, wow. Yeah, and if you see, like, when you see the pictures, he looks so proud of himself. Yeah. And this is a highlight for the rest of his life. He talks about it forever, mm-hmm. basically. A little bit later, uh, President Roosevelt also pins the Silver Star on him. Oh. So he meets a lot of, like, big-name people. Yeah. Uh, pulling back from Prince, though, this is pretty late into the war effort. Like, 1945 is getting real close to the end of it. Right. Um. This has been going on since 1939. There has been a conscription crisis in Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, Winnipeg has faked a Nazi invasion called If Day. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we, we have an episode about that if people haven't heard it already. And then obviously there are like a like crazy high amount of casualties. Yeah. In the Italian campaign where Prince is fighting, there's uh, 25,264 casualties alone. It's like these numbers just get so big that you you can't conceive of them anymore. Yeah, and this is just like military deaths, not counting people who were like killed in the Holocaust, which is something sure. that like Prince was never near. Yeah. So it's not likely you would have known much about it, but like yeah. the death toll of this war is staggering. Um in 1945, though allied forces are beginning to make inroads into occupied territory, and then eventually the Soviets capture Berlin from the Germans in May of 1945. Okay. And then the German forces surrender on May 7th, and it's VE Day across hey. Allied countries. It's big parades in Winnipeg. Everyone is so excited the war is over. <laughs> yeah. Um, the Pacific campaign doesn't end for a little while after this point, but that is a story for another time. Yeah. So Prince is just uh, discharged from the army in June of 1945 and returns home to Broken Head First Nation. And, like, coming back for any veteran is tough. Like, it's a big adjustment from going from, like, five to six years in battle to just regular old civilian life. Yeah, and I mean, doing things like going 72 hours in the, you know, without eating or sleeping and just these kind of yeah. wild adventures, right? And then, yeah, it seems like there was some real shock in coming home from being like a war hero and then coming back to the same situation he had left. Oh, yeah. So some changes had happened already. The past system was starting to phase out, but it would be used until about 1951 before it's completely removed from the Indian Act. But a lot hadn't changed, and some indigenous veterans were actually coming home to like, a weird sort of surprise in that their Indian status had been removed. Oh, okay. So the Indian agents themselves had such broad discretionary powers as to 
what they could do, when they could do it, to whom they could do it. Like literally the Indian agent was, I hate to say this, but they were the judge, jury, and executioner, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and the Indian agents were incredibly influential and they used things like coercion um, to force people on reserve. Like Indian agents in a lot of cases had the final veto in regards to who the band councils were gonna be and who was gonna sit on those councils. Um, and there are, there are stories within communities that circulate saying like, yeah, when that person came home, when our family member came home from military service, they were told by the Indian agent, you're no longer an Indian, your status was revoked, get off the reserve, you're not allowed to live here, right? And there were a number of ways in which the Indian agent could do that. Um, the biggest one was if you were away from the reserve for a period of four years or longer, your status would be removed from oh. you. How long was World War II? Longer than that. Longer than that. So if you entered into service at the beginning of the war in 1939 and didn't come home until, and most dudes returning from overseas didn't actually return until 1946, 1947, just because transportation was still very slow at that time with the amount of people that were returning home, um, as well as refugees, right? Um, yeah, longer than four years. So the Indian agent could unilaterally basically say that you were gone for more than four years. So yeah. I don't remember your status. And the Indian agent could be just because, well, I want to remove your status. I have a quota to meet. So just because I want to, I'm going to remove your status. You'd mentioned enfranchisement earlier too, which I'm yeah. saying the Indian agent would then control basically like switching that around on them yeah and and it's interesting how enfranchisement is i mean the it means the loss of status in order to gain the right to vote right because mm -hmm. voting is seen as a as a democratic process um but the pervasive idea is that indigenous peoples are incapable of making decisions about not only themselves and their own affairs but how they are able to participate in the rest of Canadian society. There was somebody that was unilaterally making decisions for them in regards to that, how Indigenous peoples were literally seen as, as wards of the state. Yeah, so I had, um, I mean, I've, I've heard about this before. I didn't know that the, like, part of the basis of it was this thing about being gone for four years. Mm -hmm. That's that's really interesting and, and really awful to have your sort of identity stripped out from under you. Mm -hmm. I also find, so, like, if people don't know, women could also have their status stripped from them if they were to marry a man yeah. who wasn't Indigenous. And, I don't know, I find these to be really interesting, and by that I mean sort of horrible and problematic ways yeah. of understanding what an identity is. Mm -hmm. And, I don't know, it's interesting, like, we can see that the way the Canadian government is acting at this point is as if Indigenous people are temporary. Yeah, the the way enfranchisement has kind of looked to me is like you have graduated out of being indigenous. Yeah. Yeah. Like we've removed it because you don't need it anymore. Right. But that's not how that works. No, as if it's sort of a, a lesser status of being and oh, haven't we so graciously allowed you to, to be to enfranchised? Be, yeah. 
Yeah, and like to be like white adjacent, essentially. Yeah, and like even then, you're gonna enter a society that doesn't like. They're not gonna care if you're enfranchised or yeah. a status Indian or not. That's not gonna matter to them. Yeah. So losing your status means losing access to the right to live on the reserve, which means access to your family and your uh. like community. Um, losing access to whatever meager healthcare is provided by the federal government. So. Uh, healthcare for indigenous people is managed by the federal government. For everyone else, it's a provincial responsibility. Mm-hmm. So, like, if you lose status, you lose your healthcare. And this is in the 1940s when we don't have socialized healthcare yet. Yeah. And, like, who's going to know to go to the province to try and figure that out? Mm-hmm. You're just kind of thrust out into a world that, like, doesn't necessarily want you in it. Yeah. And, I mean, you know, this is a time where it's not so easy to talk to your family if you're not able to physically be there with them exactly especially if your family's in a rural area without like a phone yeah or access to like regular mail delivery and you know if you're potentially you know shell-shocked or you know as we would say now ptsd the idea of having that support network just removed just removed from you is is really horrifying to imagine there is some evidence that it was used as like a punishment in world war one as well just Hmm. an episode for another time but yeah prince is princess wasn't removed at least. Okay. At least. I don't... Yeah. <laughs> it's a hard one to find upsides in. Yeah. But Prince still comes back and is kind of, like, shocked at how things are when he gets back. Hmm. Yeah, literally. So the pass system, of course, was instituted in 1885 as a direct result of the, the Northwest resistance. Um, it was supposed to be a temporary measure, um, but it lasted until at least 1951. Mm-hmm. And one of the things about the pass system was... In order to leave the reserve, you needed the permission from the Indian agent to be able to go, right? And I'm assuming they weren't always willing to give it. Yes, majority of the time they were not willing to give it. But when Prince had asked the Indian agent to say, look, I want to join the military, right? The Indian agent went, oh, great, that's a marker of civilization. So I can use this to enfranchise you later if I, if I so choose, Um, So the Indian agent obviously gave permission for Prince to be able to go and join military service to be able to leave the reserve. Um, And while Prince was overseas, the Indian Act didn't apply to him, right? So he was literally somebody who had all the rights and privileges as his fellow Canadian citizens, But the moment he returned, it's like, okay, well, first of all, you're not supposed to be off the reserve, get back on the reserve. Second of all, um, you know, you're, uh, because you have military service, you can now lose your status, right? So we can enfranchise you and you no longer have the right to vote. Mm -hmm. Because indigenous peoples didn't have the right to vote until 1960, Right. When they were actually granted, the law was changed. They couldn't actually exercise that vote until 1962. So there were a number of things that when he came back to the reserve, it was kind of like, yeah, you're just another, quote unquote, you're just another Indian. Get back on the reserve. Yeah. So it's sort of, you know, two two bad options. Yeah. Right. Is either you're sort of forced to be back on the reserve where you have to still be, you know, using this past system if you want to leave, or you're told you can't be on the reserve. And then you have no access to any of the supports that you may have had before. Right. And in neither case do you have any choice in the matter. Exactly. Yeah. Choice is the one big thing that's been, like, completely removed from the equation here. Mm -hmm. And, like, you can imagine, like, Prince has, he's coming back as, like, a well-decorated war hero who has literally met the king. Yeah. 
you would you would maybe expect that your lot in life would improve a little bit. So it's tough. Um, employment on Brokenhead is like not great. He mm-hmm. works as a lumberjack for a little bit. Um, in the interwar period, his father dies and his first marriage ends. No. So that makes things harder. Uh, he's suffering from PTSD. He's showing symptoms already. Yeah. For those that don't know, it's post-traumatic stress disorder. It's very common in veterans and residential school survivors. But basically, anyone who suffered some form of trauma can suffer from PTSD. Mm-hmm. Um, so by this point, Prince is starting to drink to self-medicate. Because yeah. the treatment options for anyone with PTSD at the time is non-existent. Yeah. For an indigenous man on a reserve... It doesn't exist. I mean, even today, accessing mental health care is an actual nightmare. Oh, it's so hard. Yeah. So, like, we talk about it a bit more now than we used to, but there was still kind of, like, this gendered idea of, like, you should suck it up and be a man. Mm. Right? Like, which you go talk about those fears. Which can only make it worse, I'm sure. Yeah. So, things are, like, there are some cracks starting to show for Prince already, because obviously it's been, like, it sounds like it's been a rough war period. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, but then in 1946, he's attacked by a woman while attending a dance. He actually needs 64 stitches. Why? Like It's not totally clear why. Oh my god. So he decides he's going to leave the reserve. Okay. He, uh, goes to Winnipeg and he gets money to start a cleaning company through the Department of Veterans Affairs. Hmm. Where he's trying- he manages to make a small profit. He works some, like, odd cleaning jobs in- okay. for a little bit, so he had some experience. He also speaks to the press several times around this point about, um, conditions on reserves, uh, desegregating schools and the closure of residential schools and the removal of the Indian Act entirely. Hmm. And at one point gets involved with the Manitoba Indian Association. Okay. So he's actually asked to join the group in December of 1946. He's asked to be their vice president and their spokesman. Everyone in the group feels that having a war hero will make people listen to them a little bit more. Right. So as spokesperson, Prince is a part of the delegation that goes to Ottawa to present to uh, the special parliamentary joint committee in 1947. Hmm. Um, in preparation, the association had been holding, like, meetings where they invited chiefs to come in and share concerns. Prince had visited other reserves, and a lot of um, bands had submitted essentially written briefs about their um, thoughts on, like, the Indian Act and their treatments on reserves. Mm-hmm. So at this big December meeting where the chiefs and representatives are gathering to share everything, Prince opens the meeting with a quick statement that includes, The treaties of 1871 have not been complied with for the past 75 years. Time and time again, they have been broken. Uh, Chief Jay Thompson from Pine Falls. Uh, we talked about Pine Falls a little bit in the LB Foot episode. Right. Which is where Powerview Pine Falls yeah. is. Um, so Thompson says, I did not sell my country. Our forefathers surrendered the depth of a Asura, which is six inches of sand. I did not surrender my water. I was to share water half and half. I was promised that my treaty shall stand fast forever as long as the sun shines and the river flows, that they were made according to the British crown. That's all. Yeah, that's super interesting because, I mean... I feel like it's more recently that we've really begun to talk more about treaties. It's it's so interesting to see people... Saying the same thing, yeah, basically. <laughs> I mean, that's a little sad, isn't it? To... It is. But I can see, like, if you have no experience with Canadian history, feeling like all of this is coming up out of nowhere. Yeah. But no, this is people talking about it in, like, 1946. Mm-hmm. Um, some, like, war colors the rhetoric a little bit, which is really interesting. Another man remarks that... Um, we should be all in for our treaty rights, just like our soldiers who fought overseas. Let us get us together and say the government, and let and not let the government say we cannot pull it together. So, like, we should unite, like the soldiers did. Some right. kind of, like, big unity. 
I wonder, too, if, like, the fact that there are treaties being signed in Europe, if that just kind of gets treaties in the kind of general consciousness a little bit Maybe, more. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know. That's the thing I've just come up with <laughs> out of nowhere. So. Right off the old dome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, they do get together and they get, like, a ton of briefs put together and they send Prince off to Ottawa. And because it's a government hearing, we have all of this. Ooh. This is written down, including the briefs. Oh, that's very exciting. Isn't it? And, like, actually meeting minutes from some earlier, like, association meetings. Because oh, cool. Prince submits them. Huh. Before we get into this, though, I think it's probably a good time to quickly clarify what the Indian Act is. Yeah. Because I feel like it's a big term that we hear and no one knows exactly what's in it. Yeah. So, um, it's a piece of legislation from the Canadian government. It's implemented in 1876 to oversee Indian status um, bans and reserves. It's historically been overly invasive and paternalistic. Like, it's mostly meant to control Indigenous people and treat them as wards of the state that can't make their own decisions. Mm -hmm. So it restricts rights, movements, education opportunities, banning uh, practices like the potlatch in BC. Uh, but through Indian status, it also provides uh, benefits. If you live on a reserve, you're not paying property taxes because you don't own the land. Um, access to federal health care, which was often quite poor. And then, like, mm. the vague promise of holding of certain traditional rights like hunting and fishing. Okay. But the issue in Prince's time and the issue now is that many of these things are not being upheld. Okay. So, um, the, basically the par parliament is meeting to discuss the Indian Act and, like, what people are saying and thinking about it mm -hmm. in 1947. So, Prince and other delegates go to Ottawa in June. The hearings have been going on for about a month already. They were hearing from people in uh, Ontario first. From Manitoba, there's Harry G. Anderson, who's president of the Indian Association of Manitoba, Chief, Chomp uh, Chief Thompson from Pine Falls, Tommy Prince, and Chief James Murdoch from Fisher River. And then there is Boniface Guimau from the Fort uh, Alexander Catholic Association. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, Prince submits around 20 briefs from different reserves and, and bands in Manitoba detailing their concerns. Uh, but the first thing Prince does is submit treaties one and two in full to the House of Commons. Okay. Which I love. Yeah. Because I'm assuming also House of Commons have those. Right. And he's like, here. Just in case. Please. Maybe you guys didn't look at these. Uh, so here are some of the concerns that Prince brings up from Broken Head, which Prince highlights as like a specific issue of concern for him because that's where he grew up. Um, the sure. provincial game warden keeps boating in and his boat keeps tearing up their fishing nets. Oh, that just seems rude. And an action that seems to be deliberate given how often it's happening. Oh. But it's not totally clear. It seems like they've lost a number of fishing nets to the game warden right. boating over them. Weird. Um, hunting and trapping rights are being restricted while um, white people can come and trap on the outskirts of the reserve when they can't. Yeah. Um, there's no economic opportunities. There was a fire that ravaged the logging industry there the previous year. So like, okay. you can't work as like a lumberjack anymore. That's gone. Yeah. There's no real farmland. So there's just not a whole lot of opportunity left. And the concerns are kind of similar across the other reserves. There's violations of um, trapping and hunting and fishing rights. Mm -hmm. um, heavy restrictions from Indian agents. One statement calls their agent a dictator. Oh. Which I would believe. Um, lack of economic opportunities. Lack of safe, accessible schooling. Um, everyone's being shipped out very far away. And obviously yeah. there's safety concerns at every residential school. One reserve requires a doctor through the Indian agent, but then the doctor proceeds to never see them and only treat people from the neighboring settler communities. Oh. And then most communities also need farming equipment, better health care, and just, like, social supports for, like, sick, old, disabled yeah. people, anyone who needs it that they're not getting. Mm -hmm. uh, and the communities of Shoal Lake 39 and 40 also present a brief to the House of Commons. Oh, yeah. So both insist the community needs a day school mm -hmm. and that the isolated reserve of their children are 
or that like they're too far away from their kids essentially like it takes days to get there it's swampy there's no road and like shoal lake doesn't have a road yeah this is the thing so the larger concern for shoal lake is of course the aqueduct yeah um so the shoal lake aqueduct or the winnipeg aqueduct is built in 1919 to supply drinking water to winnipeg if you are in winnipeg or you've ever had tap water from winnipeg that's shoal lake water yeah so the aqueduct is built by Winnipeg laborers, and it runs from Winnipeg to Shoal Lake, which is an indigenous community between Manitoba and Ontario. Though there's also a whole thing about, like, the fact that it was built with Winnipeg labor. Oh, yes, because they initially wanted to hire people from Shoal Lake to build it, and yeah. then laborers in Winnipeg got kind of annoyed about it. Yeah. I don't know. We'll do an episode at some point. We gotta. It's a big one. So, like, for thousands of years, Anishinaabe people have been enjoying that spot mm -hmm. near Shoal Lake. There's a lot of white fish, there's wild rice, and there's access to, like, water routes throughout the country. Mm. Um, the city of Winnipeg and the government kind of insist the area is, like, abandoned and isolated. No one really lives there when they're building. Oh. Which is the common development thing they're always going to say. And in the uh, creation of the aqueduct, they basically create a new waterway that turns Shoal Lake into an island. Yeah. And it means the community can no longer leave. Yeah, and this is until, like, a couple years ago. Yeah, so, like, if you wanted to leave in the summer, it was a boat. But if you wanted to leave in the winter, you had to walk across, like, thin, creaking ice. Mm. So if you wanted to, like, visit your kid at school, you would basically risk your life getting there. Uh, yeah. And, yeah, Shoal Lake doesn't get a road until 2019. Oh, God, yeah. So in 1947, Shoal Lake is now experiencing restrictions on their commercial fishing rights and other resources. And then difficulty leaving without a road. Um, their chief, uh, Frank Cabstra, notes that the way it looks figur figuratively speaking is that our reserve is like a house and the white man has stepped into it for his own use. Which, yeah. Yeah. That's basically yeah. What's ex that's exactly what's happening. <laughs> but then um, the House of Commons starts acting, uh, asking Tommy Prince questions specifically about his own beliefs. Okay. Uh, here. And like, do, are they are they made sort of aware of his history as yeah, a they, war hero? Yes, it's all announced. He actually shows up with his medals in uniform. Okay. It's like, he's made it very clear who he is exactly. Right. And there is an earlier conversation when the meeting starts where they ask him, like, where did you serve and when? And they thank him for his service. Mm -hmm. And then he presents the treaties and all of these other, like, sort of concerns and issues. And then, here, I will. Would you like to answer, ask the questions? Okay. I have very few questions, Mr. Chairman. I understood the witness to say in one of the briefs he presented that he was in favor of the Indian Act being abolished altogether. Yes, you would abolish the whole thing? Abolish the whole thing. What would you have in its place? The original treaties. Hmm. Isn't that like, it, it's an interesting idea for the 40s, it, right? Yeah, no, super interesting. It And yeah, no, it is just fascinating to see the same debates being had over decades. Yeah. And like abolishing the Indian Act was a complicated idea then. And yeah. it is now. Right. Because I guess it does grant certain rights. Yeah. So, uh... Shauna actually talked about that a little bit because I was wondering. It's interesting because, um, as a matter of fact, another graduate student friend of mine who, ironically enough, also has military service, um, uh, his name is Dr. Leo Baskatwang. Um, what he had done as a part of his master's thesis is he walked all the way across Canada with a copy of the Indian Act chained to his leg. So he started in, um, it was either Victoria or Vancouver, and walked all the way to Ottawa. And along the way, he would stop at First Nations communities to ask them, like, okay, do you know what's in the Indian Act? Do you know, um, you know, historically what's been in the Indian Act? Do you know how the Indian Act applies and affects you? 
Um, and he had asked them, it's like, do you want the Indian Act to stay? Do you want it to be repealed? Do you want revisions made to it? And in a lot of cases, there were communities that were like, no, we need to, you know, revise the Indian Act or scrap it completely. And then there are some communities that are like, no, we need to hang on to the Indian Act because it's the only way we can hold the government accountable for the promises that it made. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, first of all, that makes my master's thesis feel real weenie. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't walk at all for yours. Just to the library. <laughs> So not nearly as far. No, that's, I mean, such an interesting concept. But yeah, it's an interesting concept for a thesis. And like, this was a more recent one, obviously. So you wonder how much people knew in the 1940s. Yeah. Both on reserve and like, for like the average everyday, like Winnipeg or what they knew about the Indian Act. (sighs) Probably very, very little. Almost nothing, I would guess. And then like Prince is coming in with what kind of is a radical idea now, but was surely very radical in the 40s. Yeah. And comes in, like, well-read about the treaties. Obviously, he talks about how, like, his ancestors helped make it. Right. Which I'm sure was a real point of pride for him. Mm -hmm. He knows the terms. He knows what they're asking for. And the barrier he keeps bumping up against, I think, is different conceptions of what the treaty relationship is. Okay. Whereas for the Canadian government, it's like a one-time thing. They've won and done it. They've given all of the support they promised. Yeah. They don't need to do any of that again. Whereas Prince and many others are like, well, it's like a continued agreement, right? Like, right, that, that a treaty represents a relationship. Yeah, not just like a one-time land purchase. Mm-hmm. So it's a frustrating thing to read because what happens after all of this is the committee then proceeds to ask Prince again and again what parts of the treaties he thinks haven't been fulfilled. Okay. He names them all and they cherry pick other parts of the treaty that will disprove it or give like kind of willful misreadings of it. Oh, yeah. Like... We said you would give you farming equipment then, and we did, so you don't need a tractor now. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, Then they tell Prince that he's had an unbiased hearing. What? (laughs) And um, ignore him when he then says people have not received what has been promised. Like, I don't know. I wish wish that were surprising to me. But it's not. No, it's not. No, and, like, we could talk a lot about the hearings. They're really interesting. They go on for, like, two months. Wow. And, like, it is written statements from bands across Canada. There's ones from Ontario and going further west. And it's so interesting to have those, like, concerns written down. And, like, that has to be so infuriating to be sort of, like, listened to but not heard. <laughs> right? Yeah, everyone's like, no, no, we hear you, we hear you, but we think it's fine. Yeah. There's this one, like, crazy bit. Where Prince isn't really a part of the argument anymore, but someone is talking about, um, I can't remember which reserve it was, but how, like, the average income from a family there was probably around $200 a month, if that. Okay. And someone else is like, I think it has to be $800 mm-hmm. a month. And then Prince and someone else both go, we have been to that reserve. We do not see how that's possible. Oh. Like, there's just no jobs there. Where would they make that money? Right. But there's just these people that have never been to the reserves. I've oh. never actually like met these people outside of this context. Right. And they're like, we well, think it's possible to make $800 a month in the middle of nowhere with no tools or supports or access to anything. Oh, great. Well, I guess they already know. And then like just being dismissed out of hand. Yeah. Because like we gave you a tractor that one time. Let's not talk about the doctor that we hired that isn't doing his job. <laughs> Man, like what kind of guy is that doctor? I have a lot of questions about him. Yeah. I have a lot of questions about everyone involved in this. Like, why did you take that job? And then the part that, like, really was grinding my gears is near the end, um, 
one of the members of parliament says, to fix this, we need to restore trust on both sides. You need to trust us more. How do we restore this? Hmm. And Prince says, the Indians were led to believe, as far as I can come to the conclusion, that the promises should last as long as the sun shines, the river flows, and the grass green grows. They trusted the white man to carry out those promises. They were very glad to see these terms. But today we find it different. How can I walk along the street, stick my chest out, and say, I trust the next man, the next man trusts me, when I could not get these terms? Right. And then I, they're just like, that doesn't make sense to us. No, and that's, you know, he's talking about reconciliation. He is, yeah. Right? And and I feel like that's um, pretty incredible to go in saying, hey, this is about both of us <laughs> regaining yeah. trust, when I feel like it would be so easy to go in and be like... Well, no, Prince isn't saying it's both of us, it's the government uh, saying okay. it needs to be Got both it. of us, which is more of a like... <laughs> You need to trust us that we're Got smarter okay. than you. But then Prince is making a very smart argument. That yeah. Like, why should I? Yeah. How can I trust you yeah. like this? Um, people then start saying, like, well, maybe, why doesn't Prince have a job with the Indian department? Okay. He doesn't. He doesn't do that. Because, like, also, I don't know if I would be inclined to apply after sitting through that. No. I feel like I'd want to not talk to any of those people ever again. Because, like, yeah, the hearings go for two months. Almost nothing gets done. Prince leaves dissatisfied and frustrated, and he actually tries to talk to a bunch of other people to try and actually go to England to see King George. Hmm. Because he's like, if we can, like, go and talk to, like, the king, maybe something can get done. And it's interesting to note that this is basically what Chief Pegwis had done. That's what I was just going to say. That He was also writing to the queen at the time, being like, here are our conditions, what can you do? Yeah. Because they were talking at that point about the fact that, like, Lord Selkirk never came back. Yeah, and, like, the treaties hadn't been fulfilled then. So, yeah. like, it's this, like, repeated pattern of failure. Yeah. But Prince tried. Um, they kind of agreed, but it's like, we'll look into it. And they brush him off, right? And they do make some small changes to the Indian Act, Indian Act by 1951. Okay. So, like, the past system is removed. Yeah. But it's nothing that's going to, like, actually improve their living conditions in a meaningful way. And then Prince comes home to find that a cleaning business he started, he'd left with some friends, and they had scrapped it. His friends had crashed the truck, sold it for scrap, and then sold off everything else he'd owned for the business. Oh, that sucks. So he goes back to work as a lumberjack. Okay. On Broken Head, making what, like, meager earning he can. He had been in the city for a little bit. Mm -hmm. But it's just, like, gone. And then he starts opening up as how much people in need on the reserve. People start to sort of take advantage of that sometimes. Mm. Obviously, this PTSD symptoms are getting worse because it's been stressful. Yeah. And then uh, Canada enters the Korean conflict in August of 1950. And Prince is one of the first to volunteer. And when I was talking to Shauna about it, she thought it was uh, pretty obvious why he uh, volunteered again. This is an interesting sort of segue. When I read that particular um, bit of information about Prince, my military brain went, yeah, of course he went back. It's the only thing that makes sense. Right. Because my time as a medic, right, I was providing um, not so much treatment, but certainly I was talking with um, reservist friends of mine who were returning from um, a tour overseas in either Bosnia, Sarajevo, sorry, Sarajevo, Golan Heights. um, That was roughly around the time that I had served Rwanda in some cases. And many of them were suffering from, you know, symptoms of PTSD, um, Mm. traumatic brain injury, operational stress injury. I could throw a ton of acronyms at you and you'd be like, oh, my God, this is just alphabet soup. Why? (laughs) Um, But many of them have said, like, 
those who have returned, they end up joining or, or going out again on another tour of duty. Um, and they've said to me, it's like, it's the only thing that is structured and makes sense, right? Going over there and putting yourself into that, that situation where you are on high alert, literally 24-7, 365, because there is still that structure there, that's oftentimes what military members will flock to is the structure that's there. Mm -hmm. It's something that they know it makes sense, right? So they go back because it's the only thing or not the only thing, but it is something that they know that makes sense to them. Whereas coming back to civilian populations and trying to um, be a part of civilian worlds again, um, that transition can be very, very difficult. I mean, I don't, I don't have that that kind of experience like right i don't have a military experience mm -hmm. or, or ptsd but even as someone with sort of a more simple anxiety disorder i find sometimes the thing that happens to me is that when i'm actually in a really stressful situation i'm often totally fine and it's once i'm safe that my then body starts to be like oh no i'm freaking out yes yeah. so i can see why you would want to be like okay no like my body's on high alert anyway so i may as well I may this. as well be in a place where it makes sense to be on high alert. Yeah. yeah, it's just like, it's very much a like devil, you know, situation where, yeah, yeah obviously Prince goes back. He volunteers for the second battalion of the Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry. Um, so he is instantly reinstated as a sergeant. He comes back uh, in charge of training new recruits. They're sent off to Wainwright, Alberta. It's like marching drills and uniform care and survival technique. And they're trying to like get this group of like a thousand men into soldiers. Prince is a pretty, uh, rough reputation not rough he has a reputation as being a tough instructor okay one person claims that once when they were at the cpr station in winnipeg he was yelling at them loudly enough you could hear it from a few blocks away oh wow <laughs> <laughs> but um he he was still like a pretty brave soldier when he actually goes to korea he manages to correctly id a tripwire and then communicates it wordlessly to a whole patrol oh wow and like marks it in the ground without ever getting caught without hmm. making a noise um cracks are beginning to really show in korea um Conditions are tough. There's lots of physical strain. There's, you know, digging trenches, lugging heavy equipment, climbing steep hills specifically in Korea. Oh, yeah. It's not flat terrain. Right. At this point, he had uh, developed arthritis in his knee, which is not uncommon. He'd been doing drills since he was a child. Right. And then, obviously, there's the mental strain as well. So Prince is in Korea for about a year before he's relieved by the uh, first Princess Pats and sent to Camp Borden for a brief, after a brief leave in Winnipeg. Camp Borden is really chill. It sounds like. Okay. Like, um, it's basically a sort of place for, like, sergeants to wait to, like, retire or get a different job. Oh, okay. So they get, like, five-day work weeks. There's a swimming pool. There's movies. There's real beds. Well, that sounds pretty nice. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly nicer than, I mean, climbing hills and yeah. looking for tripwires. Do and... you think Prince liked it? No, I don't. He hated it. Yeah. He complained about it all the time to anyone that would listen, often to other people's kind of, like, slight annoyance. Right. The thing was... um. The food and the rest helped his knee a lot. Oh. <laughs> so, like, well, he was kind of grouchy about all the admin he had to do. Like, the rest was good for him. Right. I guess maybe for his body, at least. Yeah. And he feels well enough that he actually applies for another tour, this time with uh, Patricia's 3rd Battalion. Okay, so they're like, you can go home now. And he's like, no, I will not. I will go back, in yeah. fact. So this time he arrives in Korea in November of 1952, and the problems on his second tour are much more evident. Oh. He has been self-medicating for years. He's had no real support. And the physical strain's now much worse. And at this point now, the men are trained, so they're a lot less willing to tolerate, like, kind of abrasive educational tactics than they might have been when the war had started. Right. 
And uh, I'll let Shauna talk about sort of the rest of this here. Yeah, I think at that point in time, we were starting to see that his PTSD symptoms were at the apex. Um, And there is um, research out there that suggests that his PTSD symptoms, because they had gone on for so long untreated, had literally got the best of him. And that it was his PTSD symptoms, unfortunately, that led him to make a series of unfortunate decisions, Mm -hmm. which led to the PPCLI higher command having to um, release him from the military. Yeah, and he was honorably discharged. He was. Um, Now, what from the understanding that I have is that he was medically discharged. Um, I know a lot of the CAF research that is out there, so Canadian Armed Forces research, does say that, um, you know, his knees were arthritic after years of jumping from, you know, the parachute battalion in, in the Second World War, and his body just could not physically keep up with the hilly terrain um, yeah. in areas like Kapyong, where they were in Korea. Um, but there is also, um, there are also stories of... Um, he had taken a platoon out um, to go and engage the enemy when his section, or not his section commander, but his platoon commander told him not to. Um, And he disobeyed orders. So, and as a result of that disobeying of orders, he, as a matter of fact, got him and his platoon in a world of hurt, if you'll pardon the the expression, um, to the point where they had to mobilize to go and pull them out of the, the fire situation that they had gotten themselves into. Um, and Prince, unfortunately, um, had to face the music in regards to that. And they realized that it was his PTSD symptoms that led him to do sort of what he had done. Um, and they were like, well, we can't dishonorably discharge you for disobeying orders, right? Because of your status as a war hero, if you were dishonorably discharged or if he was dishonorably discharged, Um, He would have lost all access to his benefits. He would have lost all of his medals, right? Like they literally would have been for naught. So they were like, in order for us to preserve your status as a war hero, we will discharge you on a medical, right? So that Mm -hmm. that way you still have access to benefits. Spoiler alert, he didn't have access to his benefits because he's a status person. Yeah, I mean, it's really unfortunate. It sounds like he's trying to recapture something. Yeah, right? Like, the one time he felt, like, confident, Yeah, and of course, you know, you can never stand in the same river twice, right? Yeah. The the context has changed, he's changed, he's older, he's not well, it sounds like. No, and I mean, obviously, like, just the physical strain alone would make it very hard to keep up with any of that. Yeah. Yeah, so he is uh, honorably discharged on account of his, like, arthritic knees. I mean, that's a light silver lining there that they... They recognize it. There's a couple other accounts of him having, like things resembling breakdowns and okay. like near combat situations so it, was, it was maybe becoming evident that he it was, was becoming pretty evident that yeah. like something had to be done it probably wasn't safe for him to be there for himself mm-hmm. or for the people he was leading right so he uh goes back to winnipeg uh shortly after he comes back though he meets uh verna sinclair a woman he apparently admired a lot okay they wind up uh living together they have seven children together um tom albert beverly rose beryl ann karen margaret and Stuart matthew oh so, like, there's a little sort of silver line there, too, that he gets to have a family for a little bit, but his problems don't just, like, go away. Yeah, of course. He gets a job as a sweeper and a cleaner at an ice cream manufacturing plant in Winnipeg, 
only to bump into the issue that his coworkers won't work with him because he's indigenous. Jeez. Like, flat out refusing to out of some, like, misconception that he's, like, diseased or dirty. Yeah. And the plant manager keeps asking Prince to stick it out and trying to deal with it. But, like, Prince can't. No. I don't know if I'd be able to either. No, I mean, to lead, to, to deal with that kind of low-level hostility. Or, I don't know if it was low-level hostility. Maybe high-level hostility right. every day. As a person with PTSD also. Right, yeah. So, obviously, he quits. Yeah. And then what happens is just, like, the series of systemic failures that means Prince has, like, no chance of succeeding here. The jobs available to him are few and far between. Mm -hmm. He, like, doesn't have any, like, clerical or admin skills. He hasn't gone to university. Yeah. And the, like, lower-level jobs are, like... So the entry-level jobs he could have applied for are difficult because he he's suffering from chronic pain at this point. Mm -hmm. So people aren't hiring indigenous men either, so that's also a barrier to entry here. So he bounces around a lot between jobs, and it's kind of in one of those periods where he saves Ernest Pollard from drowning. Hmm. Despite the recognition, no one really dwells too deep into, like, what's Prince up to these days? Right. They're just like, here's the feel-good story. story of the day. Yeah. Ask no more questions. Right. Uh, by the 1960s, Prince's knees have begun to cause severe pain, a problem which he is now drinking pretty heavily to deal with as well. Mm -hmm. um, this causes irregular attendance at the jobs he could get, which are already few and far between. Between the drinking, the financial strain, and his like increasingly erratic behavior, his relationship with Verno Sinclair ends in 1964. And because he's not able to support his family anymore, Prince and Sinclair's children are taken away by the Children's Aid Society and placed oh. in separate foster homes. In separate foster homes. Yeah. Oh, that's terrible. So this is uh, part of the 60s scoop. Prince yeah. and Sinclair's kids weren't the only ones this was happening to. This is like the height of what we would call the 60s scoop today, a period where social services and welfare agencies are apprehending Indigenous children from their families and placing them in foster care situations with typically white families, often in unsafe and abusive homes, and they're bounced around quite a lot. Somewhere around 20,000 children are removed from their families throughout this. Jeez. It's a lot. And, like, it's hard to keep in contact with your family, with your language, with your culture. Mm -hmm. Siblings are not kept together. And for a period of time, they're advertising children in local newspapers. Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, that's so gross. It's horrible. Yeah. Uh, we do have a report from a social worker around that time that gives kind of a glimpse into what Prince is going through. Mm -hmm. The social worker writes, In many respects, this veteran continues to leave me puzzled. There's little doubt that he is intelligent and that he was very brave, and that he's intelligent, very brave, and a competent soldier, but unfortunately he does not appear to possess the qualities required to adjust to civilian life. While it is easy to blame his adjustment difficulties on the fact that he is an Indian and therefore subject to prejudiced society, and he constantly projects this blame in defense of his actions, this does not justify all the difficulties he experiences. He is a very impulsive individual with poor self-control despite his years of army discipline. He can at times display warmth, intense warmth and understanding for his family, and particularly his common-law wife, but can also be markedly paranoid and brutal at other times. Yeah, I mean, he sounds like a man struggling with mental illness. Yeah, right? That's exactly what it is, but there's... There's no term for that, right? Mm -hmm. So it's just like, we don't know what to do with this guy. Yeah. And I, I, it's just, like, so crazy to me to give someone zero support and then be surprised when they don't do well. Right, yeah. Like, we can't help you. What do you mean you're not doing okay? Yeah. And, like, he tries to keep in contact with his children as best he can. He visits his eldest daughters a little bit, but because they're bouncing around between homes so often, mm -hmm. he would see them less and less. The one he manages to see a little bit more is Beryl because she's kept in the same home for seven years, but okay. then eventually they lose touch as well. Wow. So he loses contact with all of his children. I can't imagine how traumatic it would be not only to be taken away from your parents, but from your siblings as well. Right? Yeah, oh my god. So he would also visit Brokenhead to see his mom sometimes. 
And he wasn't, like, completely unknown around Winnipeg. There was sort of an unspoken rule for, like, the Winnipeg police service. If they saw Prince around drunk, they would just drive him home. Hmm. They yeah. just, like, wouldn't bother. I guess that's the sort of small grace that they grant him as a war hero. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But then it makes you think, too, like, if this is happening to a war hero, what's happening to, like, everyone else, right? It's, yeah. Yeah. So, obviously, this is, like, a pretty difficult period for Prince going into the 1970s. Um, his knees are worse. He's beginning to lose some of his older friends because he's kind of, like, grouchy and erratic mm-hmm. and not doing well. Periodically, he'll go to, like, the Capyong Barracks and they'll provide him with, like, food and a clean set of clothes. Yeah. But, like, he only has kind of these, like, small mercies at this point. He also loses his medals in a fire. So, like... Oh, no. Yeah. The only uh, sort of upside here is that his daughter ages out of the foster care system at 16 and starts trying to find him. Okay. So this she. Is, this is Beryl, the oldest this is, one? Uh, Beryl's not the oldest one, but oh, she's okay. middle. Yeah. But the one that she had seen, that he had okay. seen the most, because yeah, he would she visit was, her. Right, got it. So she had asked around and kind of found out which bars he was hanging out at, and she would go and she would wait outside of the bars because she couldn't get in. Oh, because she she's would, 16, right. So she would ask everyone coming out, like, is Tommy Prince in there? Mm-hmm. And, like, she kept missing him. He was, like, going out back doors or he had just been there. But then she finally figures out that he is living at the Salvation Army Hostel, and she goes there and asks to see him. Mm-hmm. He's called down, and apparently he doesn't recognize her at first because it's been years. Right. She introduces herself. He breaks down into tears and pulls her into his arms and calls her my baby. Oh. And it's the only time anyone's ever seen him cry. Yeah. Um... So he still would speak to his oldest children. They all kind of found each other eventually, or the oldest ones would. Um, he loses touch with the youngest two completely, which we'll talk about a bit later. Beryl actually hangs out with him quite a lot after this. Like, they go for lunch all the time. Okay, well, it's a whole thing nice. where, like, she would kind of go to the bar he was at, and she would wait outside until he was done, and they'd go get a sandwich together. Nice. And eventually, his children would actually inspire him to try and stop drinking. Mm-hmm. So... Which, I mean, you know, it's a really, really difficult thing to do. It's hard. Yeah, not everyone can do it. Yeah. Um, a lot of people do it for some time and then can't, then, then yeah. relapse and yeah. Um, once a year, though, during Remembrance Day, Prince was in demand. So he was often called out to Remembrance Day ceremonies and parades. No. And he would appear in uniform. Other princes' pats give him a special salute and citation at an Indian Day ceremony in Brokenhead. He gets a certificate of merit in 1976 from the Manitoba Indian Brotherhood. But I, I mean, like, on the one hand, I'm glad that he has that kind of, like, once a year thing where he gets to sort of, yeah, you know, remember that feeling, but... It does. Fe- it feels a little cheap. Maybe, it does, yeah. Right? So, like, the newspaper reporting on the awards always mentions his military service and then kind of nothing else. Mm-hmm. And part, I think, is Prince probably isn't going to admit to it. Yeah. But, like, by this point, he's living out of a suitcase, basically, at the Salvation Army Hostel. He doesn't have much that he owns. He's got some clothes and apparently just newspaper clippings about, like, his own achievements in the war. Okay. Because he doesn't have the medals anymore. Yeah. So he does start quitting drinking, but he runs into an issue when he is uh, stabbed in a bar fight when someone mistakes him for someone else. Oh, no. He manages to survive that, but it takes another toll on him, and he becomes a little more, like, jaded about people. Yeah. At one point, he's asked if he would still, like, fight in the wars today, and he said he would for the people of his time, but not the punks today. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um... He tells a local journalist that he's spent years reliving, like, terrors of the first two wars. He's suffering nightmares. And then uh, in 1977, at 62 years old, he dies at Deer Lodge Hospital. And then after his death, his sister Florence reports the Veterans Administration was only going to provide $500 for his funeral. And the family didn't have that much. Yeah. The, like, explanation given is that's the amount they're paying for every veteran. They're not going to give special treatment. But that suggests to me that it's not enough for anyone. Right. Yeah. Um, 500 people come to his funeral. 
uh, men from Broken Head play, uh, play drums and chant Death of a Warrior song as he's lowered into his grave. The lieutenant governor is there. There's consuls from France, Italy, and the U.S. Wow. And that's kind of it. Yeah. And it's, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a, I mean, most of that is really sad. Yeah. Um, But I am glad that we are talking about that aspect of Winnipeg. Yeah. No, and, like, the thing, the thing with, like, the reason it's so sad is that, like, there's all, there was no system in place to help him. Prince. Yeah. Almost, like, he didn't stand a chance, right? He's traumatized through two wars, residential schools, and, like, a series of personal traumas. Right, like, there's not there's not a point in this episode where I was like, oh, if only he had done that other thing, then he would have been fine, right? Like, No, there's, there's not... no options here. No. And, like, this is happening to a, like, well-decorated war hero who has, like, 11 medals to his name. Yeah. And then you think about, like, an indigenous veteran who didn't do any of that, or just, like... The pass system ends and a guy goes to Winnipeg in search of a job mm-hmm. and can't find it because of what Prince is going through. And what happens to any of them? Yeah. Like, those failures are still going to take place. Right. We're just going to know less about them. Yeah. And then we talk about Prince like he's a war hero. He's on stamps. And yeah, I don't know. It's The rest of that doesn't tend to come up a lot, which it's so it's so hard to know. You know, do we should we sort of preserve that image of. Like, yeah. this man who's a war hero? There's a really good biography of him that makes the comment that, like, when it comes to public memory, there's a certain amount of forgetting that's necessary. Yeah. And I think that really, like, explains what's going on here very well. Yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, there's some benefit to having a hero, right? A, yeah. a, but, I don't know, then also isn't that doing him a disservice to forget the rest of his life? Yeah, and I think also, like, to ignore the ways that, like, we failed him. Yeah, yeah, right. you're like, right. Yeah. He did this for us, but we didn't do anything for him, and we're not going to mention that. Yeah. It feels weird. So, like, even after Prince dies, the medals turn up again. Mm-hmm. They're acquired by a pawn shop, and the family doesn't get them back until recently. Wow. They have to be fundraised for. Yeah. And they get them back. That's really disappointing. I mean, I'm I'm glad people, whatever, people were able to help them get them back. But, but like, they you shouldn't would, you would kind of, in the first place. No, you would, and you would hope that when someone realized, oh, I've got these, that they would just sort of give them (laughs) and um prince's youngest daughter karen only finds out who her father is well after his death oh wow she's uh there's a podcast episode where she talks about it i'll link to it on the website because it's really interesting it's about her dad's like military service but her adoptive father apparently had kind of a hunch that she was related to tommy prince but didn't know for sure so he had been Hmm. collecting news clippings for her oh that's nice and then she managed to put the piece together and at least talk to like some of her aunts yeah and like cousins Mm -hmm. so she made contact with some of the family but yeah, it's a bummer of an episode. It's a thing I've been pretty passionate about. I feel like you've gotten a lot of messages about how yeah. like frustrating this has been to work on. Yes. Yeah. And like, I don't. The thing with Prince is that you can tell so much. Like, he cared about his community, about his like kin. It's what motivated so much of his life: his military service, his activism. And it sucks in a big way that like we couldn't provide any of that care back. Yeah. Yeah, and and you know we've talked about like people in previous episodes who were trying to improve social services yeah and it sucks that we're like you know the the kind of the, they maybe tried to get a ball rolling that didn't it roll. didn't happen yeah <laughs> so yeah that's kind of the winnipeg prince was in which is one that's like not the nicest yeah and i mean i don't know what else to say about it it sucks i find his like legacy as an activist really really interesting yes that was the part that was so like neat to go and like read Mm-hmm. basically word for word what he had said to people yeah no i think that's that's really neat that he also like 
use this tactic right of of like i'm a war hero and i can use that to speak for my community because people will listen a little bit more exactly yeah it was a smart move yeah it's it's interesting actually like a lot of the um like civil rights movement in in the u.s and in canada as well come out of that that sense of pride from the second world war where yeah you know there were also like black soldiers who served and they came back and they said you know we don't want to be treated that way anymore yeah and there's some like shauna talked about this too uh in the interview and i'll share the full thing on our patreon for free um about how like because the military was a way for it's like white people to meet indigenous people. It was a way for like those connections to be formed, and then yeah. like together they could kind of push for changes to certain like laws and legislation. And it's neat that he. It sounds like he repeatedly used that opportunity to let people know who he was, who his community was. Yeah, exactly. He was proud of it. It's the whole way through. Yeah. So, yeah, I'll post the full interview with Sean because we talked for a good two hours about like Prince, oh, cool. his legacy, and then like veterans' issues in the past and today. It was a really fun discussion, so if you visit us at uh, patreon.com forward slash one great history, it's free for anyone who wants to listen. It's worth checking out. Mm-hmm. It was really fun to talk to her. Uh, thank you so much. And if you want to see uh, pictures, sources, that interview with his daughter Karen, uh, any of the excellent theses I had to work with for this episode, you can check that out at onegreathistory.wordpress.com. We'll share pictures and stuff on social media, on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. We are One Great History on Facebook and Instagram and number one great history on Twitter. Uh, there are numbers in the episode description for residential school supports, veteran supports, and to the Main Street Project in Winnipeg if you'd like to help any of those out or if you need to talk to someone. Mm-hmm. And uh, thank you so much for listening. Mm-hmm.